If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus 19. As we continue on tonight uh, in this uh, wonderful book of Leviticus, we'll be uh, tonight in uh, roughly the first half of Leviticus 19, though we will go ahead and, and read the entire chapter through to the end. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his father and his mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten... The same day you offer it, and the next day. But what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather from the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Now if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed or given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, Then the priest also shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. You shall, you shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. You shall revere your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger resides with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and my ordinances to do them. I am the Lord. Now this chapter that we've just read is an important one, not only for people of Israel, but also for us. The opening call of the chapter in which the Lord commands Moses to speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, is a command that is explicitly given to us as New Testament believers as well. And we find this in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, where Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now Peter's words there calling us to holiness and explicitly referencing the fact that we are to do this because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy, should tip us off right from the get-go that in reading Leviticus 19, we are not reading someone else's mail. It is not as a whole. Though there are certainly some ceremonial laws contained here, nevertheless, the chapter fundamentally is about how to live as God's holy people. And in thinking about this, we need to get straight from the beginning that it's not that we make ourselves holy. Rather, we are made holy by the Lord himself. And then, as a result of being set apart by the Lord to the Lord, we're to live as such. This is how it was in the Old Testament. This is how it is in the New Testament as well. And so, for instance, Exodus thirty-one thirteen, we read this. You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The rest of the Sabbath day was a sign to the people to know that it was the Lord who sanctified them. It was the Lord who made them holy. Similarly, Leviticus 20, verse 8, You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And this same dynamic is in play in the New Covenant. It is the Lord who sanctifies us. Now, obviously, we grow in respect to our sanctification, but even then, it is the Lord who sanctifies us. There is a positional sanctification, a positional holiness that belongs to all who are in Christ. 
And so after Paul had spoken to the Corinthians concerning some of the sins in which they had participated before they were converted to Christ, he says to them, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. They were sanctified. This is why all Christians in New Testament terms are saints. The epistles are addressed to saints, to Christians. This is not a special degree of Christian. This is a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a saint. We're holy ones because God has made us holy. And our holy calling then as saints then serves as the impetus to live as God's holy people. And so we find this in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Paul's exhortation, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, this is who they are, the chosen of God, holy and beloved, but on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So holiness mattered then in the Old Testament times. It matters still today. It matters always. And this is because God is holy and God makes his people holy. Indeed, all who are his people must be holy. We're told that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. That being the case, what we find in these laws contained here in chapter 19 is the way in which we are to live as God's holy people. The laws in this chapter cover the ground of dealing with most, if not actually all, of the Ten Commandments. And if you read through this chapter with, uh, with, an, with an eye to, to look for the Ten Commandments, you can find most of them in there, at least by implication. And of course, in this chapter, we find the second of the two great commandments, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that, uh, that that law was the second, second in importance, after the command to love the Lord your God. This command to love your neighbor as yourself is what James called the royal law according to the scripture, James 2.8. So this, this is an important chapter. There's big stuff right here. And so what does it look like to be holy as the Lord is holy? Verse 3 opens with references to the fifth and fourth of the Ten Commandments. The Lord's holy people will reverence their fathers and mothers. This, as John Gill expressed it, includes an inward esteem and reverence of them, an outward respect unto them, a readiness to obey their commands. Our parents were those, physically speaking, who brought us into the world. Quite literally, they were the ones who brought us into the world. And under ideal circumstances, not always, but under ideal circumstances, they would have been the first who have trained us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that we always have to agree with our parents, nor that they have uh, that our parents have authority over us as adults in the same way that they did when we were children, nor that we must obey their commands if their commands contradict the Lord's commands. But at the very least, it does mean that mom and dad shouldn't be our punching bags. We shouldn't be continually raking mom and dad over the coals. We don't have to paint our parents as perfect. None of us had perfect parents. But, again, 
They shouldn't be our punching bags. We can acknowledge their faults, but this is very different from defaming them and behaving in an irreverent and disrespectful manner toward them. And likewise here, the Lord commanded that his Sabbaths be kept. And the plural here is used because there were many Sabbaths given to the people in the, the Old Testament times. There was, of course, the, the Sabbath of the seventh day, but then there were also Sabbaths associated with the various feasts of the Old Testament liturgical calendar. And if you, if you read the, the legislation with respect to, to some of those feasts, they will, they will talk about this is a, a, day of, a day of rest, a Sabbath unto the Lord your God, or, or something to that effect. These were to be kept. And indeed, as we've already mentioned, they were assigned to them that they might know that it is the Lord who sanctified them. And the Lord's Day, which, which we as Christians observe on the first day of the week, ought to be the same kind of a sign to us, which we observe that day by ceasing as we are able from our usual work to gather to worship and fellowship, hear the word of God proclaimed, to observe the ordinances. And as we do that, as we gather together to remember the gospel and apply the gospel to ourselves, we ought to be reminded that it is the Lord who makes us holy. For as we are reminded of the gospel, as we should be, when we gather together as the church, we should be reminded of the great truth held out in Titus 2, 11 through 14, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. This is what we ought to remember when we, when we think of the gospel, that God sent his son into the world to save a people for himself, to purify us so that now we would be zealous for good works. It's God who saves us. It's God who sanctifies us. We should be Reminded of that when we gather together on the Lord's Day. And in that sense, the Lord's Day functions in a, in a similar manner to the Old Testament Sabbath. The Sabbaths in the plural. Though there was a part of the fourth commandment that was ceremonial and applied with a particular rigor to the ancient Israelites. Nevertheless, there is a part of the fourth commandment that is moral and abides still. And in that sense, the Sabbath was made for man, as Jesus says, in other words, it is for our benefit. How could it not be when a part of the right usage of that day is to remind us of God's great work for us, that he's the one who saved us, that Christ has redeemed us in order to purify his people for himself. So in other words, Sabbath is made for man. This is for our good. Let's use the Lord's day for our good, for our benefit. Remember the gospel and apply it to ourselves and gather together and worship to build up the body of Christ. Verse 4 contains a command against idolatry and the making of images for worship. And he gives this command and says, I am the Lord. He's the Lord. An idol is not God. An image is not God. We must worship the Lord only. We must do so in the way that he has commanded because he is the Lord. Because he's the one who calls the shots. And this call to Worship the Lord and to do so as he is commanded flows into what follows there in verses 5 through 8 with respect to the peace offerings. Now, it's been, I realize, some months since we uh, discussed the, the law concerning the peace offerings given back in chapter 3 and in chapter 7. 
But you may recall from our discussion in those days that the, the uh, peace offerings were the offering which was offered to the Lord and then was subsequently eaten as a fellowship meal. There would be some particular parts of the animal that would be burned up on the altar to the Lord, and then there would be some portions which would be given to the priests, some which would be used by the worshiper, eaten by him, eaten by his family, and then also shared with others. And the stipulation here that is emphasized here in chapter 19 is that the peace offerings must be eaten prior to the third day, which is a reiteration of the law that was found in chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. Now, since it's been a while since we were in chapter 7, I'll I'll mention this again. Now, the scripture nowhere gives an explicit reason as to why the peace offerings must be eaten the third day. I myself am inclined to think that the reason why these sacrifices must not be eaten on the third day and beyond was uh, because these sacrifices were ultimately pointing ahead to Christ. I think they were ultimately pointing to Christ that his body would not see decay but would be raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, no flesh of any sacrifice, peace offering or otherwise, was permitted to exist beyond the third day. It must either be consumed by fire or consumed by persons. And as much as those sacrifices were ultimately pointing ahead to Christ, why should we count it a strange thing if the fact that no dead flesh of any sacrifice could remain after three days was something that pointed actually ahead to the resurrection of Christ on the third day? We should all praise God that the dead flesh of our Lord Jesus did not remain dead, did not remain in the grave, but came to life again for us and for our salvation. Now, verses 9 and 10, and then if you look on down to verses 13 and 14, give laws concerning the more vulnerable in the community. Verses 9 and 10, the people are commanded that their harvests are to be conducted, but not with absolute completeness. There was to be something left for the needy and for the stranger. And I think we need to observe here that though the law of God encourages industry and thrift, it does not do so in such a way that one can only be concerned with himself. In other words, the law of God does not encourage selfishness. Even though the Proverbs are clear that hard work is required of us and that hard work pays off in the long run, Nevertheless, the word of God does not allow us to close our eyes to the needy. Here in the Old Testament, there are laws like here in verses 9 and 10. And also in the New Testament, we have a command like Ephesians 4.28, which says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with the one who is in need. It's not simply to do something good with your own hands so that you can be rich. If you can, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but the explicit purpose is so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now, the Word of God certainly sanctions private property, the need to respect the private property of others, but at the same time, it doesn't allow us to turn our back on those who are in need. And this principle is clear and is indisputable. Now, how the principle is to be applied practically is another matter and subject of dispute. Some would 
perhaps see the civil government as the right one to step in and help in this regard, that the civil government ought to be the one to spread the wealth, so to speak. Now, under the current circumstances and in its current manifestation, I don't think that our government is doing a particularly good job with this. But nevertheless, let it be said that certainly our government does help the needy. I have no doubt that they do, that there are legitimate people who have legitimate needs who are helped by the government. My sense is that in some cases, however, they are not so much helping the needy as they are encouraging laziness. The apostolic rule was clear on that as well, that if a man would not work, he should not eat. My sense is that our government, in addition to supporting some who cannot work, are also supporting some who will not work. And that's too bad in more ways than one. And so in some sense, we could say that all of us here who pay taxes to our government are helping to support the poor. Now this, I realize, doesn't have a ring of great large-hearted benevolence to it. And I understand that there could be a discussion to be had about whether it is the role of government to be helping the poor or whether that ought to be taken care of by individuals or other organizations. That's, that's a different discussion. We're dealing here not with what ought to be in regard to our government and the usage of tax dollars, but we're dealing with what is. And the fact is that whether they ought to or not, in addition to using our money for things that are clearly wrong, they also use some portion of our money to support some who are legitimately in need who, for whatever reason, are not able to support themselves. Whether this state of affairs is best or not, again, it's a different discussion. But nevertheless, all of us who pay taxes are helping to support the needy in some respect. But I dare say, I dare say that there is more that we can do for the poor and more that we should do for the poor than simply pay our taxes and hope that Uncle Sam will do it right for us. Christian practice of Giving alms for the poor has a long history. And I think that it is noteworthy that in the 39 Articles of the Church of England, drawn up at the time of the Reformation in England, Article 38, on the one hand, pushes back against the community of goods, or what we might call an early form of of communism, practiced by some in the Radical Reformation, but at the same time encouraged the giving of alms. That article stated this, The riches and goods of Christians are not common as touching the right, title, and possession of the same. So no communism, the right of private property still remains. Notwithstanding, every man ought of such things as he possesses liberally to give alms to the poor according to his ability. The law of God calls us to care for the poor. And I think we understand, obviously, that the specific way that's required here in this chapter is is not relevant for most of us, given that, so far as I know, most of us here have no fields or vineyards from which anyone would benefit. I've got a few grapes planted on the uh, property line of my place that we planted this spring. They didn't they didn't produce any grapes this year because it, it was their first year out. I'm hopeful that eventually there might be some, but my doubt is that probably not too many people are going to be coming to the edge of my property line looking for the grapes that fell on the ground from my six vines. And uh, my sense is that for many of you, you're you're in a similar boat to to where I'm at. And obviously, uh, we need to make sure that 
when seeking to help the poor, we do so in a wise and responsible way. So there's certain caveats here. But all caveats aside, this is something that needs to be done. It is something that is required of us by the Lord. And there's a great multitude of ways to do this. If someone asks you for food on the street, you can give them food. We have a benevolence fund here at church from which we help people who contact our church in need of food and from which we support church members who are in need. I know that you hear that from me every time we take a benevolence offering, as Lord willing we will do later tonight. But this is, this is important. We, we use it. We do have church members who sometimes, from time to time, have need. And the point is this is not just an ancient and venerable custom It's very much a current tool by which we are trying to carry out that apostolic custom of remembering the poor, which thing Paul was so eager to do in Galatians 2.10. You remember how Paul met the apostles and they compared notes and made sure they were preaching the same gospel. He said they only asked that we remember the poor. He said he was eager to do that. And there are other means of helping the poor as well. Every year we approve a line in our church budget for the Baltimore Rescue Mission, which provides food and shelter preaches the gospel to the poor. When you give to Andover, you're giving to them. And you can support that ministry and others on your own. There are crisis pregnancy centers who support and help and provide for people in unplanned pregnancies, and there are other organizations that seek to help the poor and provide for them. By one means or another, we need to be helping the poor. And it's noteworthy here that helping the poor extends beyond simply what we might call charitable giving. We find this down in in verse 13 when it speaks and says, The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Now, I don't think that this verse requires in our context that employers pay their workers daily. I don't think this law inherently means that a weekly or bi-weekly paycheck is a sin. I I don't think we should draw that conclusion. But I think that it does mean that if we are in a situation where we are employing others and we know that they have needs, that they need money more quickly than might be the normal standard business practice, we maybe need to take that into account when we're seeking to pay them. I remember that years ago, while Pastor Shane was still here, we had a self-employed man who was doing some work for the church. And and I forget the precise details, but the bottom line was that he wanted to be paid more quickly after his work was done as opposed to waiting for a once a month paycheck or a once every uh, two weeks paycheck. And our treasurer at the time was, was thinking that this is, this is not standard business practice. And Pastor Shane pointed to either this text or one that is like it in the law and says, you know, hey, we, we need to be paying this guy more quickly in the turnaround. And so sometimes helping the poor is not an act of charity per se, but just taking their situation into account and acting reasonably because of it. This man wasn't asking for payment before the job was done. He was asking for payment after the job was done. And in that sense, I think think we were helping somebody who was in need, and it wasn't an act of charity. We were just paying him what we had agreed to pay him, just paying him a little more quickly than might have been standard practice in our day. And then verse 14 speaks of how we treat the disabled. And you'll notice that the law speaks in terms of forbidding things which the persons would be unable to perceive. The deaf man could not hear it if you cursed him. He wouldn't know. 
The blind man could not see it if you put a stumbling block in his way. Now, he'd find out about it when he got there. But part of the point here is that this is not just about hurting other people's feelings. In other words, it's not just out of consideration for the deaf man's feelings that you can't curse him. The point is this is a wrong thing to do, whether or not that deaf man ever finds out about it. And the law there says, You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. We're to fear the Lord in the way that we deal with other people. In fearing the Lord, we are to love these who are our fellow image bearers. We're to treat them with the dignity that is inherent in them as one bearing the image of God. And so part of our reverence and fear for the Lord plays itself out in how we treat other people, especially those who are vulnerable. And while verses 9 and 10 and verses 13 and 14 speak of caring for the poor and for the disabled, verses 11 and 12 speak broadly of how we treat one another in our dealings. There's to be no stealing, no false dealing, no lying, no false swearing in the Lord's name. To swear falsely in the Lord's name is to profane his name, which is a violation of the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. People were to be honest and just in their dealings with one another, and we must be so in our dealings as well. When we're selling a car, we're selling a home, or paying taxes, we can't be misrepresenting what we're selling or what we have earned or anything of that nature. We need to be above board in all of our dealings. This is how society falls apart when you can't trust people that you're dealing with. And this is also how we reflect the holy character of God and how we love our neighbors. And closely connected to this is the issue of justice that we find there in verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Now sometimes authority structures may seem to favor the rich, and sometimes popular opinion may seem to favor the poor. Sometimes also there is a sympathy factor that comes into play, and folks are inclined to favor the poor or those who have been disadvantaged. Maybe the case is a little bit questionable. Can't we just kind of toss a bone in the direction of the poor man or in the case of the disadvantaged to give him a boost? I remember once when I was young, I was, uh, I was at an auction, and there was this old uh, kerosene lantern there, and I was, I was bidding on, on this lantern, and there was, some, there was somebody else, I guess, who wanted it and was, was bidding against me. And I remember there was... Uh, there was someone there, and uh, they said, let the boy have it. In other words, they wanted to throw me a bone, taking into account my youth or, or whatever. They said, let the boy have it. And so I think sometimes that when we think about justice, we might tend to want to look at the person involved instead of the, the case itself. The law of verse 15 is decidedly against partiality towards anyone towards great or toward the poor. In legal matters, balls and strikes have to be called without any partiality, toward age, toward background, toward status and society, nothing. Balls and strikes have to be called without partiality. This means, as we say, that justice is blind, that each case 
must be judged on its own merits, not according to the persons involved. If the facts of the, face, the, facts of the case favor the poor man, then so be it. If the facts of the case favor the great man, then so be it. The Lord is a God of justice, and we as his people must be people of justice as well. And by justice, we're not talking about equal outcomes. We're talking about impartial judgment, that we judge our neighbor fairly. And then in verse 16, we have this command against going about as a slanderer. The King James translated the word as a talebearer. John Gill's comment on verse 16 was this, that the word used signifies a merchant, and particularly one that deals in drugs and spices, and especially a peddler in those things, that goes about from place to place to sell them. And such having an opportunity and making use of it to carry stories of others and report them to their disadvantage, hence it came to be used for one that carries tales from house to house in order to curry favor for himself to the injury of others, and such a man is a detestable person and ought not to be encouraged. The point is, we're not to be like that. We're not to be tale-bearers, slanderers, seeking to, uh, to spread stories toward the injury of others or for our own benefit. We can't be like that. Similarly, the law of verse 16 says that you are not to act against the life of your neighbor, against his blood. Rather, what we find in verse 18 is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as our Lord Jesus Christ has expounded this, this idea in the parable of the Good Samaritans, this means not only that we avoid doing evil to our neighbor. Right? The priest and the Levite did no positive harm to the man that they left by the roadside. They didn't punch him. They didn't kick him as they went by. They just walked away. They did nothing to him. Rather, what we find in this law about loving our neighbor as ourselves is that we actively pursue their good in addition to not perpetrating evil against them. The command to love our neighbor in verse 18 is thus a summary of so much that is here in this chapter. It's no wonder that Paul could say, as he did in Romans 13, 9 and 10, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, when we reflect on these laws that we've seen here in this chapter, it should cause us to say with David, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Or we should say with the prayer of Nehemiah 9.13, you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. The laws that are given here are, are really good, right? We want people to treat us this way. We ought to be treating other people this way. These laws show us who God is, and they show us how we are to live as his holy people. A little reflection on our own lives show us how we failed in one, two, three, four, five, six, however many ways, a number of ways. Surely it's more than one. But thanks be to God that our Lord Jesus Christ did not fail in regard to any of these laws. He lived sinlessly in all of these things, went to the cross for us so that we might be his holy people. Let's reflect on that, that Christ obeyed these laws perfectly so that 
we might be the Lord's holy people. Let's reflect on that as we come to the table this evening. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we see in these laws so much that is good. We recognize in them the goodness of your character and the goodness to which you call us as your people. Lord, we acknowledge our shortcomings and we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we would be faithful in these things, that we would have hearts that love these things, that you would incline our desires to keep your law and to see how truly wonderful it is. And Lord, we pray that by the empowerment of your spirit, we would walk in your ways, that we would serve you as your holy people. All for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.